turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. And this makes the third straight week I've been teaching from the book of 1 Corinthians. I didn't have an intention to do this, but it just has happened that way. God willing, next week we will turn our attention to the book of 1 Peter and work our way for the next several weeks through the book of 1 Peter. But for the time being, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 19, reading to the end of the chapter. This passage will serve as the basis for the morning message. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and encourage you to follow in whichever version you have with you. 1 Corinthians 9:19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. For most of us, doing evangelism is a lot like going to the dentist. Not many of us really enjoy it. But it's something good for us to do, right? Why this negative impression with regard to the matter of evangelizing? Well, I'm going to give you four reasons that I have deduced from observation as to why this is the case. The first of which is this. We do not really understand what evangelism is in its most basic form. Evangelism is sharing the gospel of Christ in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. I have no power to persuade anybody to give his or her life to Christ. It's actually impossible for me to save anybody. Now you might say, didn't I just read with you from chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, verse 22, the second part. Paul says, I become all things to all people or men in order that I might by all possible means save some. Well, we know there's more than one meaning to the word save. The meaning that is most important is the idea of being saved from our sin and for God's use. But the idea of save in the way in which Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians 9 is the idea of rescuing someone from a dire strait, 
a difficult situation. That's what the idea of saved means, as Paul uses it in this passage. But the reality is, we can't save anyone. But we do have the wonderful opportunity to be the mouthpieces of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel of Jesus, which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Salvation is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what might that gospel be? Very simply, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. We need to understand the nature of evangelism. It's God's work mediated through people just like you and me in whom the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells. Here's a second reason that we have a negative impression, another misunderstanding, is we think of evangelism as an event, right? And in reality, it's a process. We saw this last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. You may recall what Paul says to the Corinthians about how they came to know God through Jesus Christ. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So it's God's work. We've already established that. But we have different parts to play in the process of people coming to know Jesus. There is the very important process of planting the seed of the Word of God. And then cultivating the soil. And then watering it. And then Lo and behold, at some point, we hopefully will be able to join in the reaping. Isn't it fascinating what Jesus has to say to His apostles in John chapter 4? Where He says, in this case, the saying is true. One sows and the other reaps. And He, in effect, says, I have called you to enter in to this reaping process, the harvesting process, and you have not done the hard work. The real labor has been done by others long before you. And we need to understand that if we get the opportunity to reap, it's awesome. And I pray for everyone in this room who knows Christ, that if you have not yet entered into the harvesting process, that you would do so both. But do not be mistaken. This matter of evangelism is definitely a matter of process. I was thinking about this last week in conversation with a brother, and it occurred to me that people who are cultivated and don't make an instantaneous decision for Christ, in my experience, which is not always the best measure of anything, but in my observation of people who have had a longer period of gestation before they are born anew, born from above, those people typically have a greater impact for Christ in their work for Christ. Because they have had time to process the message of the gospel. The Spirit of God has been able to work in their hearts and to clarify things that are a little fuzzy for them. And therefore, this process is something that is the norm over against the actual way that we typically think of evangelism. It's not primarily an event. Evangelism is a process.
A third misunderstanding we have is that the great work of evangelism is done by people like Billy Graham. And if you don't know his name, perhaps you know the name Greg Laurie, whom God is using in Harvest Crusades in Southern California, more recently in Dallas, Texas, all over the United States, maybe even all over the world. Well, if you were to talk to Dr. Graham today, I can't say this about what Greg Laurie might say, but I have a suspicion he would say the same thing. Dr. Graham would say, in our crusades, and there are no telling how many millions of people have heard the gospel under the voice of Billy Graham, and a large number of those people have come forward at the invitation time in such a crusade, and they have prayed to receive Jesus Christ. But what you would discover, the statistics would show by Mr. Graham's organization, that those people who come to hear the gospel, who receive Christ, up to 90% of them didn't just wander in the stadium where the conference was being held. Rather, they were invited by a friend who had already planted the seed and had been cultivating and had been watering the seed. And Mr. Graham was used by the Spirit of God to draw the net. Same, I'm sure, with Greg Laurie. Do you know God's preferred method for evangelism? The most effective evangelism is not in a mass audience, not even a group this large, but one-to-one. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and following, Paul writes this, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were, by salt, so that you will be able to know how you should respond to each person. Not to a big crowd, but to each person. You see, by its very nature, evangelism is person to person. Evangelism that works is relational in nature. Even when Billy Graham or Greg Laurie stand before thousands and tens of thousands of people to preach the gospel, they are relating to those to whom they preach. What I know about Mr. Graham from the brief contact I have had with him is that he is very personable. He is a relational man. And I would have the same impression, although I cannot vouch for this, not having had a personal encounter with Greg Laurie, but listening to him preach, listening to his conversation in other interviews, what I note is he's a man who's a relational man. And anybody who's going to be effective in evangelizing, whether it's in a mass setting or one-to-one, is a person who is relational in sharing the gospel. The gospel is by its very nature the work of God. And it's by its very nature a process, but it's by its very nature person to person. And notice what Paul writes there in Colossians chapter 4. He says, let your speech always be with grace. Now we know what grace is. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How are we saved? It's by grace. But in this particular context, the word grace is used the way it was often used in secular life among Greek-speaking people. It is a word which we closely 
akin to our word charm or charming. Let your speech always be charming. And that does not mean manipulative. We're not to try to manipulate people. The gospel is not to be preached in a manipulative way. It's just to be declared. But here's the, here's the point. Our speech should be something that will attract people. Here's another word for charm. Listen to the word. Winsome. Interesting, isn't it? Winsome. It's a compound word. What are the two words? It's made of, in English, win, and what's the other one? Some. Does that sound familiar? I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might win some. That's what Paul says. Winsomeness. Do you know people whose speech is winsome? You just like to be around them, not to hear their accent or whether they can logically present something. It's just you're built up when you're around them, correct? And this is to be characteristic of our speech. How is that possible? You say, I'm not a conversationalist. I, I just stumble over my words and fumble around for the right words sometimes. Well, look, don't worry. Jesus said this. When the time comes for you and me to give a word for Jesus, we don't have to worry. What we're going to say, the Spirit of God will give us the words. The Spirit of God will give you what to say in conversation. When you talk to people and you want to see them come to Christ, believe me, the Spirit of God is more interested in that person's coming to Christ than you are. And He will give you what you need in that situation. Anybody who knows Jesus Christ is capable of being an effective personal evangelist. You might say, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, well let me tell you, there's really no such spiritual gift in the New Testament. That's going to just blow your mind. There is a type of person who is a gift of Christ to the church who it might be safe to say has such a gift because Paul says he, naming Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. So Jesus gives all these kinds of people to the church for what purpose? For the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. All of us have been given the incredible privilege, if we know Christ, to be spokespeople for the Lord. You probably say, I could never stand up in front of a crowd of ten people and talk to them. But, you know, I am pretty comfortable talking to people one to one. Some of you might say, I'm not comfortable talking to anybody, anytime, anywhere. I can tell by your response, some of you are like that. you just rather not to talk to people. And that's perhaps the way God created you temperamentally. But what I would safely say is the Lord will give you what you need to say in building a relationship with people. So don't labor any longer under the misunderstanding that you've got to stand in front of a bunch of people and share the gospel in order to be an effective evangelist. Remember, what is the very nature of the evangelistic enterprise? It's God's work, number one. He does it. He does the saving. Number two, it's 
a process, not an event. And there are typically many people along the chain that begins with the initial planting and the ultimate reaping of the net, of the harvest, the the gathering of people together as the net is cast for people to come to Christ. And it's person to person, one to one. Now, here's the last thing. I'm not sure this is so much a misunderstanding as it is something that's been badly neglected in the church in terms of teaching. In this passage, six times Paul uses the term when. When, 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 when. He uses it over and over again. Do you think that was on Paul's mind? That's what really was stirring in his spirit. The Holy Spirit was stirring him up with the concept of his winning people. And that's what the Spirit of God does in our lives. He stirs us up. Now, here's the question. He says, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. That's another way of saying win some. And the question would be win for what and win from what? Let's seek an answer to what we're to win people for and what we're to win people from. And we need to go to Jesus for the answer. In John 3.36, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's what we're saved for. We're saved for eternal life. Do you think that's important? That's life after death. That's eternity. So we can be with the Lord in heaven forever. That's critically important. But another aspect of eternal life is it's the abundant life that Christ died for us so that we could have. That being life in the Spirit. That being the fruit of the Spirit. That being a life that can rise above the circumstances of life and flourish when everybody around that particular individual may be falling apart. So, for what are we to win people to Jesus? For eternal life. That's big. But from what are we to win people? To save people? I appeal to the same verse from which I quoted, where Jesus goes on to say, after having said, he who believes in me has eternal life, Jesus says, he who does not obey or believe, the word could be translated either way, he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. We are to win people from the wrath of God. Do you believe in the wrath of God? Where do we see it most clearly displayed in Scripture? We see it when Christ is being crucified and He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying what he was experiencing. God had turned his back on him because he had become sin on our behalf. He was being punished. The weight of the entire wrath of God was being poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kind of fate you or anyone else faces without being saved by Jesus from your sin. This is our mission. This was Paul's mission. This is our mission. This is the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ for His people. 
We're to glorify Him. How do we glorify Him? By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We glorify the Lord by sharing Jesus and helping people come to faith in the Lord. We also glorify Him by letting our light shine in such a way that men may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And when people see our good works because of the way in which we live our lives, they will be drawn to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to be men and women who want to be like Paul because he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he says, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might rescue some for eternal life. We love to preach that message. But from the wrath of God, we need to hear that message too. To stir our hearts to think people who are without Jesus are on a collision course with the wrath of God. Not just for time, but for eternity. The Bible says about Jesus in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 11, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. We're on a rescue mission as the church of Jesus Christ. And we're to participate with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit to rescue people who are without hope in this world because they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to consider from our passage today in chapter 9, what does this evangelism look like? It's relational evangelism. And that idea really is almost unnecessary to say it's relational because all effective evangelism is relational. Hopefully that's already been communicated. But for our purposes this morning, I'm going to give you three things which are necessary. And it's not my giving you anything. It's right here in the passage which we're studying. It's God's message for us. Three things are necessary for you and me to be effective in our personal, relational evangelism. I'm going to give you each one, and then I'm going to talk about each one in some detail. Here's the first thing. Relational evangelism requires that you be humble. That's number one. Be humble. Secondly, relational evangelism requires that you be flexible. That's second. And lastly, relational evangelism requires that you and I be versatile. Let's take these one at a time, beginning with our needing to be humble. Look at verse 19 of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Paul says, I have made myself a slave. There's a suggestion in that statement that he had to, in effect, kind of push himself into the position of being a slave. And actually, his enslavement to all people was simply an extension of his enslavement to Christ. He knew he had been bought with a price. He knew, and it's evident in the way in which he introduces many of his writings... He calls himself a bondservant, which in effect is a slave of Christ Jesus. And so he was humble, being a slave, suggesting humility. Isn't it true that slaves live to serve others? 
Therefore, they have no rights. They have no time of their own. They have no possessions. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 9, if you were to look at verse 4, you'll notice that Paul says, I forfeited my rights to food and drink. In verse 5, he said, I forfeited my rights to be married. I could have been married, nothing wrong with it, nothing wrong with food and drink, but I forfeited my rights. Why? Because I wanted to win people to the Lord. He said, also, I forfeited my rights, which are given to me and everyone else who preaches the gospel by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. I forfeited my rights to earning my living from preaching the gospel. He parted with anything and everything rather than hinder the gospel. In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, We put up with anything, now listen carefully, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. That would be a good rule of thumb for us. Are you giving up things in order to not hinder the gospel of Christ? If we understand the gospel, if we understand what evangelism is all about, if we understand what is at stake, there will be this growing sense, I believe, in our hearts to give up those things in our lives which could be a hindrance to the gospel. He made himself a slave to how many people? All people. That suggests that the relational evangelist cannot be selective in her evangelistic efforts. Paul crossed racial and religious barriers to preach to the non-Jewish world who are called Gentiles. So must we cross all barriers, not even acknowledging the barriers, just cross over them. It's a bit scary to go into uncharted waters sometimes. But when Christ is with us, are we okay, by the way? Joshua 1.9, God says to Joshua as he's getting ready to cross into a totally different world. What was the promised land? He says, Have I not commanded you? Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. If God is with us, Paul says, who can be against us? We have the Lord with us. So we can cross those barriers. Was Jesus reluctant in any way to minister to people who were different? From Him? By no means. We must voluntarily enslave ourselves to those unlike us religiously, physically, culturally, ethnically. We must humble ourselves if we're going to be men and women who are used to reach people for the Lord. Let me give you an illustration or two at this point. One is set in the not-too-distant past in the 1970s in Houston, Texas, the pastor of the West Memorial Baptist Church, Ralph Neighbor, a pioneer in reaching people relationally with the gospel. A deacon in his church let him know of a man that he was aware of who had some sort of remote connection to their church who was dying of cancer. This man's name was Jack. Jack had been the president of a very prosperous company in the city of Houston. But when he got sick, he was unceremoniously dismissed. 
He soon ran out of resources. He soon ran out of all of his savings. He spent every penny he had trying to find a cure in the best hospital in the world, perhaps MD Anderson Hospital, to no effect. He did not know Christ. So Pastor Ralph Neighbor and his dear brother Deacon went to witness to this man because it was well known that he was not a believer in Jesus. So after they had visited a little while, the deacon brought the subject of the man's destiny up. And he said to him, Jack, you have talked so freely tonight about the fact that your life is coming to a close very soon. Are you prepared to meet God when that moment occurs? And something erupted in Jack. And he said, you blankety-blank Christians, all you are interested in is what happens after I die. If your God is so great, why doesn't He do something for me now while I'm still living? You see, I have become penniless and therefore my wife is going to be widowed with nothing. My only daughter, whose college fund has been exhausted trying to get a cure for me, she's not going to be able to go to college. And that having been said, please leave my house immediately. Well, they agreed and they left. It was an awkward conclusion to their conversation. A week later, the deacon called Ralph Neighbor, his pastor. He said, Pastor, I think it's time for us to make one more visit to Jack and his wife. Pastor Neighbor said, okay, we'll go. They went back over, knocked on the door. Surprisingly, they were welcomed in. It was not the warmest reception they'd ever had, but nevertheless, they were ushered in. And as they sat down, the deacon who had brought the subject up of Jack's destiny said to him, Jack, I have talked to a realtor who is a part of our church. And he has agreed to take your house on, sell it, and he will give you his commission so your wife can have that to live on. In addition to that, I and two other men in the church have agreed to take turns paying your house note until the house sells. And thirdly, I have talked to a friend of mine who owns a very nice apartment complex in the neighborhood in which you now live, and he has agreed to give your wife rent-free and utilities paid an apartment if you will collect the rents for him. And also, he's going to give you, your wife that is, some income which will pay easily for your daughter's tuition for college. And you know what Jack did right then? So Ralph Neighbors tells it, he broke into tears. He did not receive Christ. There's no good story at the end. He never received Christ as far as anyone knows. But his wife gave her life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Being humble. It would have been easy to walk out of that house after having been lambasted by Jack. And the deacon could have said, well, that ungrateful, arrogant guy. But that was not this deacon's viewpoint at all, was it? He was humble in the way he related. He became a servant to this man. Let me give you another illustration. You may say, well, that's a biggie. 
I, I, I don't have capacity for that kind of humility, and I don't have the means to do such a thing. The largest church probably in the world is found on the outskirts of Seoul, Korea. The pastor, Pastor Cho, founded it in 1973. And this church now says it has more members than the city limits of El Paso encompasses people. 800,000 plus people. Can you imagine? The ministry is built upon Jesus, but it's really built upon small groups meeting people in the neighborhoods where members of the fellowship who make up this church live and loving them to Christ. If you know anything about Seoul, Korea, it's like so many large cities in the Orient. People many times have their dwelling in high-rise apartments. One lady, a member of the church, wanted to start a group, a cell group, in the high-rise in which she lived. But if you know anything about Korean people, they're very industrious people. They work hard. And especially if they live in a high-rise, when they get home, they just want to chill. I don't know if that's the word you would use, but that's basically what it is. They work five days a week. They're off on Saturday. If they go to church, that's reserved for that day. So this lady was asking the Lord, Lord, what can I do to reach my neighborhood, the neighborhood of the high-rise? And the idea occurred to her that on Saturday, it was a day when people were out a little bit more than normal. They were running errands to do things like shopping and so forth. And so she decided she would get on the elevator on the bottom floor and just ride it up and down, up and down all day with an eye toward locating people like young mothers who had their arms filled with groceries and children and trying to help them get to their apartment. And she would do that. She would look for elderly people who were struggling just to get their groceries in or other bags which they were carrying to their apartment. She would listen to conversations as the elevator went up and down between women. And she would hear women talking about how they had leaky faucets and the maintenance people were taking too long to get there and it was irritating them. And then she would go over and she would say, Do I understand you to say that you have a leaky faucet? Yes. And then she said, my husband is an excellent repairman of leaky faucets. And would you allow my husband and me come to your apartment and let him fix your leaky faucet? And that opened the door for a lot of meaningful development of relationships, and people got saved. Look, that is very creative, isn't it? But it's not something that that's difficult. We just have to want to get in on the action of sharing the gospel with people, and the Lord will open the door. So what's the first thing you and I must know if we're going to be successful relational evangelists? We have to be humble. We have to enslave ourselves to other people who don't know Christ. What's the second thing? We must be flexible. Paul adjusted to the spiritual backgrounds of those he hoped to win to Christ. Look at verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Paul was a Jew par excellence. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's what he says. As 
regarding legalistic righteousness, he said something that's just mind-blowing. I was flawless. He kept every jot and tittle of the law. He knew what it was like to be a Jew. But when he came to Christ, that changed. His perspective changed. He was set free from the bondage that the law had put him and all others under who were following the Judaism of the day. But when he went to a town with the gospel, what was his first stop? Every time, the same place, the synagogue. Wherever there were ten men of Jewish descent, 20 years of age or older, there could be a synagogue. When he went to Thessalonica, his first stop was the synagogue. Other places as well. There were times when he would go to places like Philippi. When he inquired as to the synagogue in town, there was none. So he asked, is there a place where people who are God-fearing people meet for prayer? He found it. It was out in the open on the bank of the river that runs through what was then Philippi. And he found mainly women, and the leader was a woman, Lydia. But he was always sensitive to people who had the Jewish background, was he not? Because he did not want that to be a barrier to their coming to know Christ. After all, the Jewish people were people from whom Jesus came and to whom the Messiah was promised, for sure. He had Timothy, who was half-Jewish, and by Jewish law, Jewish, because his mother was Jewish. He had him circumcised, we are told in Acts chapter 16, to remove any barrier that would keep the Jews that they would go and preach the gospel to, as he accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey, keep the Jews from giving the gospel a hearing, because he was uncircumcised. He was careful to fulfill any vow that he had made under Jewish law. We have two examples of this, one in Acts 18, one in Acts chapter 21. Paul, be sure to understand, refused to compromise the gospel. When a principle regarding how one may be saved was at stake, Paul would not budge one iota, and nor may we. For instance, in the case of another young man, Titus, Paul refused to have him crucified, it was kind of like crucifixion, circumcised. (laughs) Because the false teachers in Galatia were saying a person had to be circumcised to be saved. So you see, he didn't compromise the gospel message, nor shall you or I. Don't get the impression that we are to compromise Anything about the gospel. Not at all. At the same time, while we display a life that is humble and that is flexible, and as we're going to see, versatile, that's not the whole story. We have to share the gospel message. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of words, but of power. What power is he talking about? He's talking about the power of the gospel because in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross of Christ and the resurrection. We have to preach the gospel for people to be saved. It's not by being kind that people are going to come to Christ. That's 
laying groundwork. That's planting and watering and cultivating. But we have to share the gospel message in order for people to be saved. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 21, to those who are without law is without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Now, Paul was one who became a Gentile in the way he lived in all respects except with regard to the moral aspects of the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments as it relates to ethics, how we treat each other. He was under the law of Christ. And we've seen recently from the book of Galatians what he meant by that. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because if we love our neighbor in the power of Christ, we're not going to do anything to her or to him. To hurt either him or her, are we? Paul refused to violate the moral law, and so must we. Effective, relational evangelism is not merely the result of mastering the right information. I may be able to give the four spiritual laws, draw the bridge illustration. I may be able to ask the two diagnostic questions from EE and go through. I can do all those things. Those are methods. I can master the method and still not lead anyone to Jesus. Why? Because I have to, by the help of the Holy Spirit, find a place of commonality with people. And it becomes more and more necessary in the world in which we now find ourselves. We are a secular country, not a Christian country. We're very far from being a Christian country. We have a generation of people who have no clue about anything about the Bible. Nothing. So we have to help them come to understand these things. We need to find an area of common interest with those we seek to win. That's what Paul was doing, wasn't it? He was being flexible, wasn't he? Becoming all things to all men, so that by all possible means he might save some. Here's what's true. Of every person you and I meet who does not know Jesus, and most of those who do, everyone outside of Jesus is most interested in himself or herself. So if I show interest in him... I have found the most important area of common interest. People know it. They know when you're interested in them. They know whether you're just sharing the gospel to fulfill some sort of religious obligation or to get guilt off your conscience. Sharing Jesus is about caring for people, loving people, making the effort to establish commonality. Some of you know the name Diane Fossey. Her life was cut short when she was murdered in the highlands of Rwanda. She'd spent 18 years there studying gorillas. And she spent five years before she ever had any physical contact with a gorilla. Five years. You know what she did? She crawled around on the floor of the jungle. I'd been afraid I'd get bitten by some kind of poisonous snake, a mamba Cobra or something. But she, I don't even know if there are mamas and cobras in Rwanda, but I'd be worried about it. And she crawled around like a gorilla. And she would take the kind of leaves that the gorillas ate in their, in their view, and she would eat them. And then she would get celery that grew wild, and she would eat on it to make a contact with these gorillas. Can you imagine spending five years in isolation and in a dangerous setting 
just to reach some gorillas? Well, I love God's animal creation. I love animals. What a blessing it is that God's given us animals. But people are more important than animals. And we have people around us who need the Lord. Are we willing to make some kind of concession to build a relationship with people and be flexible to reach them? What are some ways we must be flexible with people who don't know Jesus in order to win them? We need to accept their misconceptions of God. There are so many misconceptions even within the church about who God is. It's due to biblical illiteracy and in some cases, in every case, people who don't know Jesus, they don't have any idea who He is. They may be able to say, well, He's the Son of God, so the Christians say, but they really don't know who He is. Well, here's what we need to understand. I've seen this repeatedly over the last 30 or 40 years. I have run across people who are open to knowing Christ. And I have said to them, and this has been the most effective way that I have found to win people to Christ. I've said to them, would you be willing to meet with me at your convenience just one time? And if you want to meet a second time, that'll be fine. If you say, I don't want to meet with you again, that's okay. Would you be willing to meet with me and just read the first chapter of John with me? Would you be willing to do that? And probably four times out of five, people say, I would like to do that. I remember a man named Jeff Stevens. Jeff was an engineer, so he wanted to know everything about the gospel before he made any commitment to Christ. I counted up one time. I met 23 times with Jeff. He wore me out. (laughs) He was a wonderful young man. But I thought, this guy is never going to receive the Lord. I'm just wasting my time. Do you know what happened after the 22nd meeting? I said, Jeff, are you ready to receive Jesus? He said, I am. You know what we've done? We just finished reading the Gospel of John together. It was in his nature to want to know everything he could know, and he gave his life to Christ. What I have discovered is that in addition to the fact that people are willing to do this who don't know Christ, this is what I've discovered, is that people who go over a long period of time of inquiry and serious inquiry about the person of Jesus Christ, the longer the gestation period, the stronger the life in Christ is. I have no recollection of anyone who's gone through this approach with me, now I can't say about other people, who have dumped Jesus somewhere down the line. It's because they had time to process. Can you spare time like that? Just to read the book of John, you say, hey, that's easy for you, Mike. You've been a pastor for 40 years almost. You've been to seminary and so forth and so on. Yes, I have. But you're further ahead if you know Jesus than anybody who does not know Jesus. You know a lot more about him than those people that you might be trying to reach. And remember what Jesus says. Don't worry about what you say. The Spirit of God will give you what you need at the moment you need it. So we need to accept the lifestyles, not condone the lifestyles of people. Jesus, remember, was called a friend of sinners. He hung out with sinners. Their speech may be shocking because of the vulgar nature of it as far as we're concerned. 
when Norwegian evangelist Olfert Picard was preparing to preach as a guest in a church, the usher in that church came running up the aisle of the building where the meeting was going to be held the first night. And he said, we've got a problem, Pastor. We've got a problem. He said, what's the problem? People are in the aisles and they're swearing. And he said, this is the right crowd we want here tonight. They're going to be converted and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He put up with some of the things that were offensive, did he not? And so we too are to be such people in the way in which we relate to those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we need to understand that we are imposed upon many times by people when we're trying to reach them for Christ. Jesus was imposed upon. When he comes home after a grueling mission in Galilee, he's there. He's probably there to get some rest and relaxation. And all of a sudden, a crowd shows up. They intrude upon his privacy. And what does he do? Does he shoo them away? No, he begins to teach them the Word of God, the Gospel. Some of you are old enough to remember the Iranian hostage crisis of 1980-81. 444 days of imprisonment, as it were, for Americans there in Tehran. And there was one of those who was part of the hostage group. His name was Gary Lee. His father, Earl Lee, was at the time the pastor of the First Nazarene Church in Pasadena, California. Pastor Lee received a call from his home. It was his mother-in-law who lived with him and his wife. The wife was out of town, and she was panicky, the mother-in-law. And she said, Earl, you've got to come home now. Our yard is filled with reporters from every television outlet in L.A. and all the major papers, not just in L.A., but all over California. Come home quickly. And he said, calm down, calm down. It's not that bad. She said, you must come home. So he said, okay, I'll come home. On his way home, this is what he did. He began to rehearse what he was going to say to those reporters when he got there. How obnoxious they were, how much a nuisance they were. And all of a sudden, he had this sense in his spirit. That's not what you should do. You need to be open to them. He knew whose voice that was. It was the Spirit of God. So when he got out, he was assailed by many of those reporters, all asking the same thing. Uh, Reverend Lee, will you give us a statement? Will you give us a statement? No, no, no. I'm going to go in and check on my mother-in-law and then I'll come back out. He went in, made sure his mother-in-law was okay, told her what he was going to do, goes back out on the porch and he says, I'm not going to give any of you a statement, but until the crisis is resolved, what you can do is make my home your home. And they just set up a camp right there. They went in his house, on his lawn. They stayed there. The crisis was resolved in three days and the hostages were released, as you recall, in January of 1981. There was a young lady among the media represented there And this lady had gotten a copy. Someone had given her a copy of Reverend Lee's little book, The Victorious Cycle, or The Cycle of Victory. I can't remember the exact name of it. But nevertheless, she read it and she said, Reverend Lee, I am impressed with your little book. But I'm more impressed with the way in which you have treated us and how you've opened your home to us when you're the one who has most to lose in this whole matter. It's the calmness you have exhibited in the face of great stress in your life. 
that young lady gave her life to Christ two months later. She reported that to him. That had to do with his being willing to be flexible, right? To put up with the intrusions that were put upon him. Now, let's look quickly. We have just a few minutes to finish. What's number one? Be humble. What's number two? Be flexible. Here's the last one. Be versatile. Look at the last part of verse 22. We've looked at this already. Become all things to all men, so that I may be all me- by all means save some. I do all these things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. The games which are mentioned were the Isthmian games. They were held every three years, and the participants were versatile. And I'll tell you why. The games were... a pentathlon. And that means there were several events, kind of like the decathlon. The pentathlon, if I'm not mistaken, is a five-event kind of games. And they would swear, ten months before the games began, to swear off certain foods and to go into strict training to win a perishable wreath. It was just a wreath which was made out of pine needles that were green. That's all they got when they would succeed and what they did by winning these games. Well, in order for that to happen, they had to go into strict training in order to receive a fading crown. What is the crown that we can look forward to? According to 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, the crown is the people whom the Lord uses us to help come to know Jesus. Some of us plant. Others water. Others reap. But we're a team. And sometimes you plant, you water, and you reap. But that's beside the point. We're on a team reaching people for Christ. I wish for everyone here who has not had the opportunity or has not taken the opportunity set before you that you could introduce someone to Jesus. Maybe many someones. It's wonderful to see the Lord change a person right before your eyes as you offer yourself to be a relational evangelist. How intense was the training? He says in verses 26 and 27, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. He was purposeful, wasn't he? There's an intentionality about it. I box in such a way as not beating there, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The word translated, I discipline, really means to give oneself a black eye. He didn't really hit himself in the eye, but the idea being was he would put himself through rigorous training spiritually so that he could be useful to the Lord. We must be people who recognize the great opportunity that the Lord has given us. How can we be versatile? Well, let me quickly give you some ideas as we finish. Two basic ideas. Observe current trends in culture. Know what people are reading. I don't advise you to read many books on the New York Times bestseller list. 
you're wise to stay away from a lot of it because it's just garbage. But you know, you can read reviews. The New York Times has a, a pretty good review ses- section, book reviews. Wall Street Journal also. Here's a great magazine. It's World Magazine. It's a Christian counterpart to Time Magazine. Excellently done. Terrific journalism. And every issue has book reviews of books which are currently being read by people in general in America. We need to know what people are reading. So when we have the opportunity to engage them and build a relationship with them, if they talk about certain people or certain books, we can know about it. We need to know what movies are being seen. And you might say, I'm not going to an R-rated movie, and I don't blame you. I wouldn't either. But you can go to a good website like Focus on the Family Plugged In, and you can get a little synopsis, a review of the movie. You can get the content so you can kind of know what it's about, so you can communicate. And with regard to music, you know, I couldn't tell Lady Gaga's singing from Taylor Swift. I think I would like Taylor better. I think I would. I don't have to listen to their music to know something about those singers. But it would behoove you and me to know something about pop culture. If we're going to cross over the barrier into secular thinking, we've got to know what these people are reading, what they're seeing, and what they're doing if we're going to be effective. So be conversant with current trends in culture. And then be willing to make sacrifices. After all, we're slaves, right? And be able to say, I'm denying myself five hours of television a week so I can invest in a relationship with an unbelieving person. And invite unbelieving people to your home. Be a host to them. Let Christ minister to them through you and your family. Your family Christ-centered family is a great witness to people. Your Christ-centered marriage, a great witness to people who don't know the Lord. They're eager. I'm talking the truth. People outside of Christ are eager for community and for authenticity. And you and I can offer them both, but even more. We can offer them eventually the gospel of Jesus Christ, which changes their lives. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to consider this very important matter of our being evangelists. Thank you, Lord, that no one in this room who knows Christ is excluded from your plan in this matter. We thank you, Lord. Make us hungry-hearted like Paul to share the gospel of Jesus with others and see you reclaim them, rescue them through our ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.